We've all heard the case for how different generations approach work. Those differences exist, of course, but there's an even larger story emerging. That thinking about people and work in the context of generations is less relevant than it's probably ever been. In this episode, what's already changed, what's to come, and what we can learn from it. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 642. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Today's guest cites a quote from George Bernard Shaw in his book, Life isn't about finding yourself. Life is about creating yourself. We all have more opportunities to do that in today's world than perhaps we ever have. And a big part of that is how we think about the different demographics and generations and how we are framing that differently today than we did a generation ago, but even just five or 10 years ago, how much has changed in our work and how we think about generations. Today's guest, an expert on this, will help us to think about how we look at this from a perspective of careers and leadership. I'm so glad to welcome Mauro Guillen to the show. He is a professor of management and vice dean at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, an expert on global market trends. He's a sought-after speaker and consultant. He combines his training as a sociologist at Yale and as a business economist in his native Spain to identify and quantify the most promising opportunities opportunities at the intersection of demographic, economic, and technological developments. His online classes at Coursera and edX have attracted more than 100,000 participants from around the world. He has won multiple teaching awards at Wharton, where his presentation on global market trends has become a permanent fixture of over 50 executive education programs annually. His research has earned him many distinctions, including Fulbright, Rockefeller, and Guggenheim Fellowships. His book on 2030, How Today's Biggest Trends Will Collide and Reshape the Future of Everything, was an instant Wall Street Journal bestseller. And now he's the author of The Perennials. The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. Mauro, what a pleasure to have you on the show. Well, I'm so happy to be here, Dave. Thank you for inviting me. The, the, tr- the trends that are happening right now are so significant in so many ways, and, and yet we don't even have to look too far in the future. We can, in a big way, just look at what's happening today of how much our society has changed. And there's so many statistics you quote in the book This one probably landed with me more so than any others, though. The proportion of American households that constitute a nuclear family, and that's defined as two parents, two married parents, and at least one child under the age of 18. That number was 40% in 1970. Today, that percentage is 18%. And it's just one of so many numbers that have changed so substantially in our lifetimes, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And that, that's only, as you mentioned, the, the beginning. There are so many changes in just the last 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, American society, I think, has shifted in a, in a number of directions. And all of these will have an impact in terms of how we live our lives, our working lives, and our careers. I mean, this is this is the important point. And as you mentioned, I think the nuclear family, the decline of the nuclear family is, is really important because it was supposed to be the backbone of American society, but it no longer is. 
And as you said, it's defined by two parents, at least one child, one TV, one car, one refrigerator, and one dog, right? That, yeah. that was the uh, nuclear family, right? Uh, I'm joking now, but yeah, <laughs> uh, that model is no longer the mainstream of America, right? No, and yet in a lot of people's minds, it still is. We think about what we think about as far as conventional wisdom, and that's a lot of times the things that people think about. And yet that's not really so true anymore. Neither is what you call the sequential model of life, which is the model that I think a lot of us grew up with and we've thought about in our society. Tell me about that model and what's changed. So the sequential model of life is something that came into being more than 100 years ago. So if you remember at that point, many countries in the world, including the United States, decided to have universal schooling. So that defined the boundary between childhood and teenage, and then in part adulthood, right? Because people started to go to school. And then we also established more than 100 years ago, the first pension systems. And that again, created a limit or a demarcation between work life and retirement. So you had those two constraints in life and essentially that created four different stages. So first we play, then we study or we learn, then we work and finally we retire. And uh, because of big changes right now, we're living longer and also technology is making whatever it is that we learn at school, our skill set obsolete much faster than in the past. You know, this sequential model is becoming too constraining. It's more like a straight jacket today. We need a little bit more flexibility with our careers, with our jobs. Because otherwise, it's very difficult for individuals to adjust to all of the changes that are taking place in the world. The word perennials is in the title, and those with a horticulture interest will know that word. But you think about it in the context of people. How do you think about that term in the context of our lives now and our careers? Well, I think uh, the same way that we can define an individual as a perennial, and that's somebody who doesn't think or act their age, right? Uh, we can also talk about uh, the perennial mindset, right? So uh, that is more of a social construct, something about culture, something about uh, the way we intend to run our lives, which again is not dictated by those four stages that we were talking about earlier, but rather by our own instincts when it comes to thinking about when we want to learn, when we want to work, when we want to retire, when we want to rest, and so on and so forth in a more fluid way, in a more flexible way. Because if anything, the world, the economy in particular, the labor market is evolving towards more flexibility, is asking, is demanding that individuals be more flexible, more adaptive. And that's what the old model couldn't provide. Yeah, indeed. And we see so much of that happening today. And I, I grabbed this quote from the book. You say, many people will not only switch jobs, they will switch careers, professions, or occupations, reinventing themselves each time they go back to school. It is projected that those entering the workforce today will pursue four or five different careers, not just jobs over their lifetime. That's such a big shift from the world that our parents and our grandparents worked and lived in, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, Dave. And once again, this is being driven by the fact that now we live longer. And uh, not only that, we also stay healthy, uh, in good physical and mental shape for a longer period of time. So that means that we can work more years if we uh, wish to do so. And uh, therefore, there's enough time in our lifetimes then to essentially pursue several careers. And uh, this is what a lot of people will have to do because technology is changing the definition of jobs, the definition of careers, and people will decide at some point in their lives, well... Uh, it is uh, now the moment for me to go back to school, to retool, 
and to pursue something different. So right now, perhaps only 5 or 6% of Americans are doing just that. But I think in the near future, we'll see much bigger proportions of the population doing that. And you mentioned the word health a bit ago, which I think is a big thing. I, mean, I think we all recognize lifespans increasing. We all certainly see technology in our lives, which are two of the biggest factors on this. I think sometimes we don't think about the health span piece of it. That's significant here too, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And of all people in the world, actually, we Americans should be thinking about that very carefully because you know what, Dave? The U.S. is the exception, the only exception in the world in the sense that over the last 30 or 40 years, life expectancy here in the United States has increased faster than what I call the health span. That is to say, the number of years that we remain healthy. In every other country in the world, the two things have grown more or less at the same pace, but not in the U.S. In the U.S., we're now living longer than previous generations, but we're not staying healthier uh, for a longer period of time. And it's the only country in the world where that happens. And of course, I'm sure you're going to ask me, why are Americans different? Well, because we don't take care of ourselves that much. Obesity is a big problem. Chronic diseases are a big problem. We eat too much junk food. I just did for lunch. I had a hamburger. Uh, <laughs> and you know, we don't have a good diet and so on and so forth. And that sets us apart from the rest of the world in the sense, as I said, that life expectancy has been growing faster for the American population than the health span. There's so much we could talk about, the implications of that for Americans, of course. As you point out, though, if we set Americans aside for a moment, this is really a substantial shift. I mean, it's for Americans, too, but everywhere, like that health span, the amount of health years that we all have has shifted oh. substantially in so many ways, hasn't it? Oh, no, absolutely, because of modern medicine and other improvements. And just to give people an idea... The average American lives, it depends on whether you're a man or a woman, but nearly 80 years, right, the average. And of those, all of those years are healthy, except for the last seven years. So on average, the last seven years for Americans are years during which we cannot do, you know, what we used to do when we were young, right? So on average, the average American, the last seven years are unhealthy years, unfortunately. And again, it has grown in the U.S. more so than other countries. We, we should work more on our lifestyle and on our diet. There's so many implications of the shifts in generations. And one of the big shifts that I think really comes so close to home for leaders and careers is how we all learn. And one of the points you make in the book is on intergenerational learning. And we've mm -hmm. just not done this historically in our higher education institutions, in our faith-based institutions. Perhaps organizations and business have done this a bit better, but I, I thought it was really interesting. You've had experience both sides of this. Of course, you're in higher education. You have been in the traditional system for a lot of your career, but you've also had the opportunity to experience intergenerational learning too. How are you thinking about that now? Oh, absolutely. So you said we have historically looked at generations in a hierarchical way. That is to say, the older generations have more expertise, they have more experience, and the younger generations need, for example, guidance or mentoring from the older generations. Now, what we're seeing in many companies is just the reverse. Uh, it's called reverse mentoring. So younger employees also mentoring older employees in the workplace. And of course, we all learn from each other these days, right? Because we have more generations in the workplace than ever before because of longer life expectancy. And to the extent that companies have created intergenerational teams, teams that are diverse by age, I think they're getting all of the benefits of this. So research, for example, has demonstrated that uh, age-diverse teams happen to have higher productivity and more creativity. So diversity, when well-managed, is always good. And age-diversity in particular is very beneficial. 
I'm curious how you've seen this dynamic play out in your classrooms, having done this both ways, and and I have too in my teaching and facilitation. And I do find that there's a, a bias that some of us bring to learning environments where we the term that's often used is like-minded, which is I want to be with people who are kind of in my same situation, same stage of life, same position, so that we have something in common and we can all learn from each other. And there's a bit of that bias, I think, that I know I've brought to some learning environments and I still see a lot of, of like, I want to learn with people who are at similar life stages that I am in similar career places. That is changing a bit. And I'm wondering, like, when you see people who enter a learning situation with that bias and they get into an intergenerational learning experience, what does that look like and how does that play out? Well, as you said, I mean, I think educational institutions, including my own university, we are the worst because we essentially separate people by age, by generation, right? So we have programs for undergraduates. We have programs for graduate students. We have programs for mid-career professionals, and we have programs for executives. I think that's fundamentally a mistake. We should have programs. We should have learning programs for people in the same classroom of different ages. And I'll tell you, I'll give you an example. A number of years ago, I was involved in one of our executive education programs. So the average age of the participants was probably 45 to 50. And you know what they asked us for? They asked us for, you know, uh, as part of the week that we're going to be spending at Wharton, we want not only to hear from faculty, we want to hear from the undergraduates at the university who are engaged in entrepreneurship. So people who are teenagers or in the early 20s. And so we set up a panel of them so that they would tell them their perspective about their ventures and their perspective about markets and the world, right? They wanted to learn from people who were not like themselves. And quite frankly, I thought that was a very, very smart choice on their part. Yeah. And it's it, and I think like that's such a fascinating example because it really highlights both sides, right? Like it highlights this, this knowing that we all have, that we need to learn from different age groups, different perspectives. And yet it's interesting that in order to do that, we had to bring in a panel, <laughs> right, to do it. Like, yeah, well, absolutely. Because you know, again, isn't that I mean, funny? Yeah, yeah, because universities, you see, they they have worked very hard at diversity. So diversity, we started with diversity in terms of non-US international students, right? And then ethnic diversity and gender diversity, right? And diversity by background. So at the Wharton School, for example, we recruit students from engineering backgrounds, from teaching backgrounds, from general management backgrounds. So we, we've, we've been creating a lot of diversity in that respect, but not in terms of age. And I think this is a big mistake. This is a big problem that we have to address in the, in the, in the future because there's so much potential for intergenerational learning. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I think that's one of the, it's one of the invitations I'm hearing from you, for me and for others is how do we do a better job at setting aside some of that institutional bias that I think a lot of us have had in our higher education and our formal education programs? And how do we do a better job of thinking about age in a much more holistic way? And I think one of the yeah. things that really strikes me is, and you, you make the invitation to business leaders to think about the assumption that a lot of us have of entry-level roles within our organizations. And many of us think about entry-level roles as the kind of roles that are going to be filled by people who are in their 20s, who are coming out of school. And that's just not necessarily the case anymore, is it? No, exactly right. And look, if anything, cor corporations, companies should be motivated by how the labor market is changing. Because you see, younger age cohorts are becoming smaller and smaller because of the decline in fertility. So therefore, the competition for talent is heating up. 
So the incentive right now should be in the direction of considering now older workers as entry-level employees, right? Because there's fewer younger workers uh, joining the labor market. But in spite of that, we still see this ageism, this discrimination by age at companies in their hiring processes. Yeah, we're just going to see more and more examples of an organization where the team may be led by someone in their late 20s, early 30s, and there's an intern who's in their 50s and 60s, and that age becomes... Age is still obviously important to all of our identities and our lives, but just less important as a factor as far as when it relates to position and title and role within the organization that like I, I really hear a call from you to like let's let's set aside some of those tr- that traditional thinking that I think sometimes we don't even think about because it's just so ingrained in a lot of our societies and our experiences. Exactly. It's, it's, it's too deeply in, embedded in our mindset, in the culture and so on and so forth. And you know, Human beings, we we all have this tendency to categorize other people, right? Yeah. And so one of the most obvious ways in which we categorize people is say is by saying, oh, this is a young person or this is an old person. And uh, we start making assumptions around those facts. And obviously that can be, in the end, resulting in a very bad outcome. One of the other assumptions we make is that school and work are different things. And increasingly, we're starting to see less of a separation between those things. What do you see changing today on just how, especially those and those organizations that are thinking more forward on this, how are people thinking about that separation or now lack thereof? Well, we have uh, you know an increasing percentage of American firms and also in other countries in the world, in Europe, in Asia, having their workers join lifelong learning programs. And so, in other words, I think the ideal situation is is one in which every worker is also learning, but not just learning in an individualized way, but rather attending some kind of formal program. And of course, with new technology, with remote learning, now we can afford that, right? It, It would be too expensive with the old method of bringing people into the classroom. But I think that is the ideal situation. The ideal situation is one in which you have people who are working, but at the same time, they're also learning every day or every week. They're attending some learning session. And you point out that how we think about credentialing is, it's already changing and it's going to change more. And you point out specifically alternative credentialing options and digital badging. And I know folks who are in higher education are familiar with those terms, but for the rest of us, what is, what is an example of some alternative credentialing and, and what's digital badging and why is that significant for thinking about this new age of learning? Yeah, well, essentially, this is something that has already started in the United States, but perhaps is a little bit more advanced in other parts of the world. So traditionally, we would get a degree, right? But now what we are seeing is, especially in the remote learning space, the proliferation of other kinds of ways of learning that are more modular, more flexible. And when you put together several of those, then you can get a certificate or you can get some kind of a diploma. So we don't call them degrees, right? But they are more flexible ways of learning where the learner actually picks and chooses What are the kinds of things that he or she or they want to pursue, the kinds of topics? And so I think this is, in the end, going to be also a very beneficial trend because only the individual right, knows exactly what is needed for the next few years. Up until now, universities or other teaching institutions, they've been saying, telling people, this is what you have to learn. So if you want to become an engineer, this is what you need to do. Or you want to become a doctor, this is what you need to do. So I think we're starting to move away from that model. Yeah, indeed. And for better or worse, the prior model was simple. 
right? Like you have your regional accredited, accrediting bodies in here in the United States and in other parts of the world, of course, different accreditation, but universities adhere to those. Everyone who wanted to move forward in their careers would mostly follow that standard. And the the cool thing is, is we have so many more opportunities now. The challenge is, is that the credentialing, the accreditation is a lot more complicated now than it was, and in some cases, not there at all. When you think about and you're advising organizations and leaders to help to determine like what are programs that are quality programs? How do we make decisions about credentialing and quality? What kinds of things are you inviting people to look at on that question? Yeah, so so I think I do believe that accreditation of universities or other types of organizations that offer learning programs is very important. Remember that these days it's not just universities. We also have consulting firms. We also have entrepreneurial startups actually offering learning, right? Especially online. So it's important to have accreditation because we want to protect the consumer. We want to protect the learners in this case so that they don't, they're not taken for a ride. So I think that's important. And in most parts of the world is the national government who actually does that. Here in the United States, we have more of a regional or even state level structure to accreditation. So that's really important. I think rankings, as much as they can be criticized for all sorts of reasons, I think rankings also help because they provide information as to which programs, including online programs, seem to have higher standards of quality. So I think all of that is information. The more information that we have flowing around, the better, because then people can make their decisions as to what programs to choose. The good news, Dave, is that the supply of learning has greatly expanded thanks to technology now. Oh, yeah. Because remember, the supply of educational programs before the pandemic was severely limited because it takes a lot of money to create a university or to create some kind of an organization that can offer learning programs. You know, it's a big investment in physical plan that needs to be undertaken, big investment in faculty and so on and so forth. So happily, it's not just the technology, the remote technology, the online technology, but it's also the fact that uh, we're moving towards more flexible arrangements where, for example, faculty from different universities can actually teach uh, for a private organization, an entrepreneurial uh, startup that is uh, also offering programs. So so I think there has been a revolution, not just in terms of the technology, but also in terms of the business models, if I may use that concept. Yeah, because of course it is a business, right? I mean, higher education in, in so many ways. I mean, cost is one of the defining factors that it creates so much, in a way, inequality as well, too. And I think that that's one of the opportunities is that the this new method of learning opens up so many more doors to, yes, the traditional models will still be there, but the ability to really reduce inequality, to provide access in digital ways, I mean, it's, it's, so, it's so incredible. Absolutely. And this is really important to, to increase access to education, to knowledge, right? Knowledge should be, I'm not going to say free, but it should be affordable. And unfortunately, the costs of conventional education have gone through the roof, as, as we all know. Uh, but, you know, there's also something really, really here important that you mentioned uh, that I want to highlight, which is how important the education industry is. So the education sector is, of course, very important. Everybody goes through it at some point in their lives and employs uh, a lot of people. But, you know, moreover, in the United States, for example, after financial services, it is the biggest exporting service sector in the U.S. after mm -hmm. financial services, because we bring in a lot of foreigners into the United States. So that's an export of a service, right? And the same goes for other countries such as the UK or Canada or Australia. They also benefit from this. So they have become major exporters of education services because they attract students, whether it is physically or online, from all over the world. You point out in 
the writing on careers, something that really struck me, perhaps more so than anything else you wrote in the book, that the traditional credential will still hold value, but it's going to be assessed in the context of people's ability in learning how to learn. Mm -hmm. Could you say more about that distinction? Well, we've gotten to a point where it's impossible to know everything, right? I mean, the rate at which science and technology and, and history and all of the humanities as well are accumulating knowledge is such that it's impossible to keep up with it, right? And, and especially it's impossible to learn everything that is worth learning, let's say, if you pursue a two-year or four-year degree, right? There's not enough time. That was very different 50 or 100 years ago, right? Yeah. But now there's been this explosion in the amount of knowledge. And therefore, I think we need to think about learning as a lifelong undertaking, as opposed to just something that we do when we, when we are young. This is very, very important to make that shift, right? I mean, we've been talking about that now for several uh, minutes, but I think it's really, really important to change our mindset about that. So in other words, it's impossible to learn everything that is worth learning when you're young, you're going to have to engage in lifelong learning. I think that is the single most important change or adaptation that we need to make. You mentioned mindset. The person who has really started to embrace that mindset of lifelong learning, what is different? What's got them there that is different than maybe those that are still kind of thinking more through that traditional lens? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think there are different reasons in, in my experience. So some people do it because uh, they anticipate that there's going to be trouble. So they think that their line of work is going to be automated or otherwise it's going to be restructured in such a way that they, they won't be able to, to stay uh, and continue doing what they're, what they're doing. So they feel this urge to learn right, and to or to update their knowledge. Then there's uh, people who do it uh, just out of curiosity. So some people are very curious and they're very intellectually very active. And they just want to pursue different things. They find it stimulating. They they believe that that's the best way of using their uh, idle time or their leisure time. Uh, and, and I think we should obviously promote this in, in everyone, right? But I think there are those two basic motivations. Some people do it because they see the danger ahead. Other people do it because they're naturally or because they've learned how to be curious. I mean, if, if you allow me, I mean, the recipe I would give people if they want to become curious about learning other things is... You know, I adopted several years ago this discipline of on my phone, on my smartphone, just reading an article every night before I go to sleep. I'm lying in bed and for 10 or 15 minutes, I read an article about something, about a topic that I know very little about. So mm -hmm. lately, as I told you earlier, I'm doing this on archaeology, right? And it's really enriching me. It's really helping me see connections that I would never actually detect if I didn't do that. So if you're systematic about it, if you do that every night, I think you will develop this habit of being intellectually curious, but don't read only about one topic, especially the topic that you know the most about. Try to reach out, try to read about other topics that perhaps are even completely unrelated to what you do normally during the day. Yeah. And can I just say, I think if someone had heard that 20 years ago, that would have sounded odd, I, that I'm spending time going and looking into other fields, reading about other things, have hobbies that are really, really different than what I do. And I find today that our mindset has shifted, and even in our organizations, I've heard of organizations now that are looking for executives that have side projects and hobbies and almost the expectation that you're doing a side gig and you have other interests because the belief has shifted to 
we want people who are not just thinking through one lens or through one discipline. Mm-hmm. We want people coming with such a broader skill set. And that's to me, that's not it's not odd or weird anymore. It's almost now a necessity that we start looking at the world through that broader lens. Oh, absolutely. It's it's so essential. And there's a very good reason for that, which is that the world is now much more complex. And we see that events in one part of the world affect events in another part of the world. We also see this in science and technology, that now some of the most interesting breakthroughs are taking place at the intersection of different fields of study. Let's say at the intersection of physics and chemistry, or physics and uh, geology, right? Or linguistics and economics, right? So in other words, we're seeing that more and more the generation of new knowledge is happening at the intersection of subfields. So therefore, I think all of us as individuals should also try to be boundary spanners, if I may put it that way. Yeah, indeed. Well, and speaking of spanning boundaries, we've said the word generation a few times in this conversation already, and there have there's been so much written about generations in the workplace over the last 10, 15 years. So many articles and conversations about millennials. We've had a few of them on the show a while ago in the past. And I, I highlighted this passage where you write in the book, research has found that while many of the intergenerational differences are real, they do not have to necessarily result in different values, attitudes, and behaviors in the workplace. Some of the differences are stereotypical and conceal the enormous degree of heterogeneity within each generation. And I read that and some of the other work you cite in the book, and I get the sense that we, as especially in the business world, we have really over-indexed on thinking about the differences between generations, and we've missed the things that we so much align on, haven't we? Absolutely right, Dave. I think we have reified the concept of generation. We have become obsessed with it or by it. And we don't realize that the game of the the name of the game should be to look for commonalities across generations, right? Rather than to always insist on the big differences between different generational groups. I think what we should do is try to look for the overlaps, try to see where the opportunities for collaboration between different generations are. At the end of the day, we need each other, right? We just happen to be at different stages in life, but we need each other. So I think the obsession with demarcating the different generations has had, for the most part, a very negative effect. And I think we should move away from that. And that is certainly a central message in my book, The Perennials. It is a central message to everything. And I I love thinking about the workplace and our lives and our careers through this lens of how do we share interests and motivation and where we find the the vast majority of things where things are really similar and and of course celebrate those differences where they are but to really think about setting aside some of the traditional boundaries that a lot of us put up in our workplaces in our lives it's it's fascinating there's so much more in the book that we're not going to have a chance to go into i do want to ask you one other question though so much on this has changed in the last decade and i'd imagine as you've gotten in the research and and written this new book that you've also changed your mind on something as you look over the last year or two as you've written the book been doing the research What's one thing you've changed your mind on? Well, the one thing that I think I have changed my mind on is that I thought initially that many of these trends, many of these uh, changes that we've been discussing were very much dependent on the culture of the country or the place, right? And that, in other words, uh, well, maybe what's going on in the United States right now is not exactly the same that is going on in South Korea or it's going on in the UK or it's going on in Brazil. 
So I was coming in with this assumption that given that I was discussing in the book mindsets and culture and uh, perspectives and ways of thinking about life, that maybe the uh, individual country variations would be so overwhelming that it would be very difficult to generalize. And after writing the book, I, I realized that perhaps I overemphasized those, right? Because I do have in the book examples and data from at least 30 or 40 different countries in the world, not just the United States. The book is actually very global. And I think perhaps I have overemphasized that because now that I've been reflecting more on this and I'm starting to see the reactions of people like yourself, for example, who have read the book, I'm realizing that all of this is taking place everywhere in the world, even in places where the culture is very different from that in the United States. Mauro Guillen is the author of The Perennials, The Megatrends Creating a Post-Generational Society. Mauro, thank you so much for your work. Oh, thank you so much for inviting me, Dave. If this conversation was helpful to you, several related episodes I'd recommend. One of them is episode 266, How to Lead a 100-Year Life with Linda Grattan. Linda is a professor at the London Business School. We talked about her work on longevity and how we are all thinking very differently these days about work and life stages and our personal lives because of the privilege of being able to, for many of us, live longer than we did a generation ago and certainly over several generations. Episode 266, a great compliment to this conversation. Also recommended is episode 273, Essentials of Adult Development. Mindy Dana was my guest on that episode. We talked about the different stages of adult development, which you will see in your own life, you will see in the lives of the people you work with, and certainly amongst friends and family. It's helpful to know what those stages are. And it's also helpful to know that they don't always map to age. Age is just one of many factors in adult development, and thinking about it more holistically is helpful not only to support people, but also to have empathy for those different stages. Episode 273 for more on that. And then finally, I'd recommend episode 576, How to Help People Engage in Growth. Whitney Johnson was my guest on that episode. Whitney, just an expert on supporting people through learning and change. She talks about the S-curve a lot in her work, and in that episode, we talked Talked about the beginning of that S curve. When you're starting something new, you're learning something for the first time, you're taking on a new challenge, a new push. How do you actually start? And, and perhaps more importantly, how do you support others who are at that stage too? Episode 576 for more on that. All of those episodes, of course, you can find on the coachingforleaders.com website. And I'm inviting you to set up your free membership if you haven't done so before. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership because it's going to give you access to a ton of benefits inside of the website that aren't available on the public web. You're going to be able to search each episode by topic, rather the entire library by topic. So you can find what's most relevant right now for you, your team, or maybe even your organization. The free membership allows you to get into the episode library and really surface those things very quickly. In addition, you'll also receive my weekly leadership guide that comes every single week on email with details about the most recent episode, many of the other resources I found online during the week, quotes from past guests, and notes from all the things that we've been discussing, plus a lot more in those weekly guides. Watch for those on email. It's one of the many benefits inside of the free membership. And maybe you've been a free member for a bit, and if you have, 
I'd invite you also to consider Coaching for Leaders Plus. It is a bit more to help accelerate your learning and growth. And one of the benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus is access to our monthly recordings of our expert chats. Once a month, I make an invitation to a past guest to sit down with me and a panel of our members to ask questions of them live. The difference, though, is it's not me asking the questions. It's our members asking those questions. And we record those events and make those recordings available to everyone inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. It's one of the many benefits inside of Coaching for Leaders Plus. Sally Helgeson was our most recent guest on that. We talked about her most recent episode from a few months ago with me on how to respond when you get triggered, but we sat down and had a live conversation with her. That recording's part of Coaching for Leaders Plus, along with dozens and dozens of others from the last several years. All of that's at coachingforleaders.plus. Coaching for Leaders is edited by Andrew Croker. Production support is provided by Sierra Smith. You know what's changed a lot in the last few years? How much we're all more on video. Next week, I welcome Mark Bowden to help us make a better impression on camera. Join me for that conversation with Mark, and I'll see you back on Monday.